Thinnerlogs is a Chicago-based sketch group that writes comedy grounded in shared true, personal stories about our existence as lifelong nerds. We started your stories to give everyone a chance to do what we do, share their own stories, and foster a more heartfelt, welcoming nerd community. Your Stories is about embracing the weird and obscure in your life and asserting your geekdom with a group that gets your references. And, most importantly, Your Stories is a place to bring people up, not to put anyone down. Hey everyone, my name is Eric Arnault, and this is part one of the March 2013 episode of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast. Our theme this month is fan fiction, which led to a ton of great stories about and embodying that particular phenomenon of nerd culture. This episode, librarian Chris Cratwell defends the pleasures of terrible fanfic, improviser Maura Foley shares her fandom for a famous drag queen, and Chicago Loot Drop organizers Mike Chuck Bretzleff and Vince Scalabrino share their own tales from two very different fictional universes, Star Wars and Heavy Metal. Also, I told a story. And, as always, there's music from me and Dwight Hassler. So if you've been listening to our show lately, you know that we just relocated lots of our uh, performances to a new space, the Public House Theater, 3914 North Clark Street in Chicago. We are super excited to be taking up residence there. Uh, Our first sketch show there is taking place at the pub this Sunday, March 3rd at 7pm for $5. The show is called The March of Madness, and it's a one-time only sketch comedy performance where pandemonium reigns, literally. Uh, The show is also informing our next Your Stories recording, uh, which will be on Sunday, March 17th at 7 o'clock for free. The theme of that show is It's a Mad Mad World. So prepare whatever that makes you think of and come share it with us. Uh, Again, I want to thank everyone who's been listening to the show lately. Our numbers are looking really, really good and we appreciate your support. Uh, If you really like the show and would like to help cover the cost of things like web hosting, you can donate any amount of money you'd like to our show via PayPal on our homepage, which is yourstories.podbean.com. Thanks so much for your time, and enjoy the show. So the theme this month, as Kevin said, is Fan Fiction February. And so Dwight and I thought we would play songs uh, by one specific band, and no one has been able to guess who this band is. I'm going to give you guys some clues. Just shout it out if you think you know. So this band spent a lot of time writing about worlds they did not create. I need a mandolin to play one of their songs. And when Kevin jokingly guessed Alison Krauss, he was a lot closer than he thought. You got it. Led Zeppelin. So here uh, I, I have this joke, which is kind of true, that Led Zeppelin only wrote songs about sex and Lord of the Rings. Here, uh, here are some songs about Lord of the Rings. Uh, by the way, I bought this just for this show, so really just for this song. Uh, you ready? All right.
I have a girlfriend, but Gollum stole her, so I guess I'll get another girlfriend. Like, that fucking is like fucking junior high style fanfiction. <laughs> <laughs> also, Dwight for handling those vocals. Jesus Christ, Dwight. One of them is water. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so uh, before we get to all of your stories, I actually want to share a story tonight. Thank you. Hold your applause. Okay, so um, here's the thing I've kept from Nerdalogs forever. I mean, the guys in the group know it, but not all of you guys know it. I am uh, obsessed with Transformers. Like, that is by far the nerdiest thing about me that I keep hidden. Thank you. Uh, and I have been writing Transformers fan fiction since I was literally, like, five or six years old. Like, I, I remember... I remember in, uh, in like, kindergarten, and there often are crossovers. Like, I wrote GoBots Meet Transformers, which is kind of redundant, you know. I wrote, I, I wrote Transformers versus Magneto in, like, sixth grade, because, of course, that had to happen. Like, it makes perfect fucking sense, right? I mean, come on. Um, 
I also, like, I mean, 80s cartoons are my bag. I remember in, like, freshman year of high school, I was convinced that I had the pitch that would bring He-Man back to television, and I, I, like, sent a treatment to, like, Mattel, like, listen, this is what you need to do to make Masters of the Universe cool again. Uh, it didn't work, but... They did not get back to me. Uh, yeah, you know, but that's okay. That's okay. So... Here's a few things about me besides that. Uh, there's a few, a few of my friends have uh, been trying to convince me for a long time, hey, and one of them is here, Jeremy Connie. hey, you should write comic books. And now that, in a way that doesn't make sense because I'm not really qualified because I'm not working to do that, but there's certainly people less qualified than me. I, you know, I'm a published uh, critic of them. I, I certainly read enough of them. Uh, you know, so that's thing one. Thing two is uh, I have had one specific Transformers story in my head for a long, long time, like since I was in seventh grade, and I saw uh, the episode, it was the series finale of the original Generation 1 cartoon, it was called Rebirth, and for literally, like, yeah, so for literally ten seconds, it features a character named Punch Counterpunch, and I, I have a visual aid. Uh, so this guy, this is Punch Counterpunch, and so his, his deal is that he has two robot modes because he can be, and I'm not doing this the full way, but he can, he can be an Autobot, or if you flip him around, he can be a Decepticon. No and, 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 his, and his name, his name is Punch Counterpunch. So like, the Autobots call him Punch, the Decepticons call him Counterpunch. How did no one figure this out? Why is he, why is he only in 10 seconds of Transformers media anywhere, right? Okay. Here's thing three. Last year, because of my job writing for Sparknotes, I went out to Comic-Con and I met the editor of the Transformers comics. And uh, I have his email address, I have his phone number, and he, <laughs> he, he follows me on Twitter. And so, with, with enough people like Jeremy telling me that I should do something, I did. So, uh, because of the theme of this month's story, uh, of this month's your stories, I decided to email Mr. John Barber about a week ago. I sent him my pitch. Uh, so there's a, a series of Transformers comics called Transformers Spotlight. It's one-shots that detail the biographies of lesser-known characters. I thought, well, this is perfect for my punch-counterpunch story. Like, obviously, right? How, how could it not be? So I sent John Barber, who is the editor of all the Transformers comics, I sent him my pitch, which I'm going to read to you. Here's my pitch. Uh, bear with me. This gets a little. This gets a little deep, and I'll I'll explain things as we go if I need to. So it says, in the multi-millennial war for Cybertron, Punch Counterpunch was engineered to be the perfect spy. As a robot with both Autobot and Decepticon alt modes, he can blend in seamlessly with either army and gather intelligence undetected. But Punch Counterpunch has a problem. He can no longer remember what side he's on. <laughs> As this story opens in the present day relative to other Transformers comics, Punch Counterpunch sits alone on a barren world, an outlier in the Autobot Decepticon war that, like so many others, has been ravaged by fighting. And a full-page splash split down the middle, cleaving his head and his internal monologue into Autobot and Decepticon halves, Punch Counterpunch wonders how he became the last survivor of a battle where, really, he should have been one of the first to go. Uh, how did no one suspect his game? How did someone with such a dangerous function outlast all his peers? The meat of the issue will be told as two concurrent but competing flashbacks, one in which Punch Counterpunch receives a mission from Optimus Prime, the other where he takes his orders from Megatron. He's playing both sides of the conflict on this world, constantly afraid of discovery, learning the other secrets, but we're never really sure to what end. 
All but the first and last page of the issue will therefore be laid next to a complementary page told from the point of view of the other faction. So, for instance, on page 2, Punch gets briefed from Optimus, but on page 3, Counterpunch receives similar instructions from Megatron. The twin plot lines of the issue will eventually converge and almost loop back on each other as Punch Counterpunch Punch infiltrates the enemy's unit and the action climaxes when Punch and Counterpunch somehow come face to face in the midst of a decisive battle. This will cause unbearable neural feedback for Punch Counterpunch and will jar him awake to the present day on the final page where we learn that this has all been a twisted experiment at the hands of Bludgeon, a Decepticon scientist who holds Punch Counterpunch uh, stasis locked body in captivity. For some reason, Bludgeon's trying to find out if a single spark can support two distinct personalities. We're not sure why, but by the end of the issue, or but the end of the issue suggests that maybe we haven't seen the last of Punch Counterpunch or of Bludgeon's plans. That was my pitch. <laughs> Spotlight Punch Counter Punch. Now, Shut up and take my money. <laughs> now hold on. A day later, John Barber wrote back to me. And here's what he says. Okay. He says. <laughs> he says thanks for this. The big hang-up with this particular story is that we actually have a Punch Counter Punch story in the bag that predates me being here. We'd briefly announced it, then it got held back as Big Avenger reshaped the Transformers world, and just as we were about to use it again, something else got in the way. Some of the hardcore fans have never let us forget we talked about it in the past, and they ask about it every year. So it's really likely we'll use that story down the road, tweak to fit with the current paradigm. Uh, the other big hang-up is that the spotlights were a limited duration thing, at least for now, with an odd but specific set of characters <laughs> locked in. Not to say we won't revisit, but our publishing schedule is crazy filled up at this moment. All that said... I think the actual story you came up with is pretty solid. I can't quite figure out how he comes face to face with himself. That was my biggest question I had left over, but the idea is pretty interesting. Maybe something else will open up down the road sometime. Thanks a lot for the time you put into this. So, part of me is like, I wonder if this is the professional version of a girl being like, oh, I'm so busy this week. But, <laughs> but, also, also, he could have not responded. He could have said simply, we don't take submissions this way. You know what I mean? So I feel like that wasn't the worst response I could have gotten. So, in the meantime, I'm going to keep writing Nerdalog sketches that film, fulfill my fanfiction needs. But maybe in a year or two, you will see a Punch Counterpunch story on the stands with my name on it. Or something else. Who knows? We're still Twitter bros. So, <laughs> that's my story. Let's bring up Chris Powell. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's genius. Let's restate it. Okay. Hey guys. Hi Chris. Hey okay. Chris. Oh, Stay by the uh, microphone. Okay, I'll be over here. So I'm not a very present person. <laughs> I spend a lot of my life sort of wrapped up in self-indulgent fantasy, especially my commutes and any other time where there are pressing matters, or especially when there are pressing matters I should be attending to. Um, I just sort of make things up as I go along. And I used to chastise myself a lot for this. It's a waste of my time. It's sort of vapid nonsense. It's no good. And uh, it's not helping to improve me. It's just a distraction. I think fan fiction is a lot like that in many ways. And one thing we have to admit right off the bat is a lot of fan fiction is not very good. It's just not very good. <laughs> like, just call it what it is. It's the vapid, vomited id of the nerdy zeitgeist. It's just... What, it's wish fulfillment, blather, a lot of it. 
which puts it solidly in the realm of a guilty pleasure for a lot of people. Um, but I decided a while back in my life that I didn't have any guilty pleasures, just pleasures. <laughs> if I had access to a holodeck, I have to admit that it would probably err on the side of hedonism as opposed to high-mindedness. Um, that's just the way that I, that I get along. Um, and so, you know, I was thinking about how, how important fantasy is to us. We're nerdy people, and we've made escapism in art. We've mastered escapism, uh, and I think that's absolutely brilliant. Because when I'm on my commute, I can sit on the train and like, put on my headphones and listen to Leonard Cohen and think about how inconvenient it's going to be when I still don't believe in God and I'm terrified and dying in an off-white hellish room somewhere. But that doesn't really help me get ready to teach kids. <laughs> like, I will marinate in existential angst as, as much as anybody, more than most. Uh, but that's not really useful. So instead, you jam on your headphones and you put on some Kesha. <laughs> yeah, and you just, you're in your seat. And then, then you're dancing. You're dancing this, this incredible dance, this beautiful, moving dance. And at the end of it, the entire train car stands and applauds. They all stand and applaud. And then the girl in the corner, she looks up from her book that is written in a language you don't recognize with strange symbols all over it. And she asks you if you ever wanted to meet Fred Astaire. And you think about it and you say, yes, yes, yes. And that's how Tuesday morning I became the first companion for the female incarnation of the doctor. <laughs> because... <laughs> because, because when that's what your commute is like, yeah, like you will read the fuck out of some Dr. Seuss for kids when you show up at work, you know? You're ready to go. I'm ready for anything at that point. Um, and so what I've, what I've decided, uh, this is a, just a defense of the little things that we love, fantasies and fan fiction and some of the things that people put on a shelf as they get older or consider guilty pleasures aren't frivolities. They're necessities. In that they provide us a safe and affirmative place to retreat when confronted with the staggering realization that you exist and all of the things that entails. When the beauty and seriousness involved with how strange it is to be anything at all is just too cumbersome alone, you don't want to go home and read Dostoevsky. Do you want to read a story about how Goku and Batman beat up Galactus? Because, because, that, because that helps you relax. You know? And yes, it's cake. It's cake. It has very little nutritive value or complexity. But I say eat cake. Eat a whole cake. And never, ever apologize. Fantasy is a load-bearing psychic structure. You can't, you can't tear it out without risking collapse. We need that there. And as a people, we've gotten very, very good at doing it. So here I got really excited to come tonight so people could pull out their nerd for me and take what is not a guilty pleasure but should just be pleasurable and share it in the most positive place I know to come and do that sort of thing. And so I'm really excited to hear some reprehensibly self-serving, poorly written nonsense. <laughs>
Thank you, Chris Geiger. I agree with all of that. I agree with all of that. Uh, Maura Foley. No, I was asking you what you think about that. What do you, um, rebuttal? Well, I spent my entire trip to comedy sports rehearsal today pretending to be Daisy Mormont from Game of Thrones. But I didn't, so I didn't <laughs> it really is. I was kidding. It really is your turn to tell a story. <laughs> and I wasn't kidding about pretending to be Daisy Mormont. Because I am a fucking she-bear. Yeah. <laughs> um, my story is titled uh, Dr. RuPaul, or How I Learned to stop worrying and love being a girl. <laughs> My parents gave me far too much unsupervised television time. Maybe it's because they knew the kind of TV that I wanted to watch wasn't murder and sex and drugs. I had two genres of TV I watched. After school PBS with my main boo, Bill Nye. Yeah. And the three channel holy land of basic cable, MTV, VH1, and E! Entertainment Television. <laughs> Total fucking trash. I would switch between the three channels of trash endlessly. My least favorite was MTV, because this was back when they actually aired music, and I could give less than a shit. Um, but everyone can agree that real, real world Seattle is a treasure. And it taught me both that slapping is bad and Lyme disease has nothing to do with citrus. Um, e! Entertainment had Hal Sparks, Greg Kinnear, and Aisha Taylor hosting Talk Soup, so it was my second favorite and cemented my love of schadenfreude hate-watching reality television. VH1 was the pinnacle. VH1 had RuPaul. RuPaul's talk show aired on VH1 from 1996 to 1997. It was wildly inappropriate for a girl of nine to watch. <laughs> I rewatched what I could find on YouTube in preparation for this, and oh my god, I would be fucking horrified if my children got into it. Uh, but apparently my parents didn't care if I saw a playful flirting with male eye candy props, the salacious ribbing between Michelle Visage and Rue, and thinly disguised allusions to oral sex. 90% of it went over my head, but it was bright and colorful, and RuPaul wore very pretty dresses. <laughs> RuPaul the queen was beautiful. In free writing time at school, I wrote about me and RuPaul hanging out like best girlfriends, <laughs> drinking chocolate milk, and gabbing about what floor-length sequined gown we'd wear to that night's soiree. <laughs> In real world, I wore stirrup pants and oversized sweatshirts. But with my RuPaul obsession, I could explore being girly in a safe space, my own head. After all, I couldn't have been too much of a tomboy. I shoplifted a tool slip from Kohl's when I was six. Oh, shit. Yeah. All media, <laughs> yeah. uh, all media is consumed through the prism of our own experiences. Some people would call celebrity obsession or fan fiction pathetic, but I disagree. Pop culture constantly throws our own beliefs back at us. What does it mean to us when we tolerate the most popular book series in recent memory being a book being about a girl who throws her entire identity away to be with a man who stalks her, watches her sleep, and wants to kill her? <laughs> and Twilight is basically fan fiction. It's not trash but it's not literature. <laughs> but it represents something about our culture. It is a normal person consuming, mulling over, and reinterpreting the societal messages we receive through media. Twilight isn't just a fucked up story about the most boring vampires in the world. Seriously, where is Bella Lugosi? Um, it's a treatise on what women should want. 
the perfect boyfriend who will do anything for you, including ripping open your baby maker with his teeth. Yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, uh, so being a girl can be kind of shitty, even without a crazy glitter boyfriend. <laughs> uh, during and after puberty, I became increasingly alienated from my own femininity. I had breasts and menstruated, and my mother bought me dresses, and my sister taught me how to paint my face. But I was incredibly uncomfortable, because I didn't own this identity at all. When I, what I saw in pop culture on how to be a girl felt very uncomfortable. It was very artificial. I remember putting on a very cute black dress embroidered with little pink flowers for my grandpa's funeral and thinking that I ought to be pretty. My family would want me to be pretty, but I hated it. I hated my body. I hated my face. I hated the way the dress pinched in at my waist to make me look more like a woman than I normally did because it felt so fucking fake. The insecurity and discomfort peaked in college. Like an asshole, I took a few sociology courses and realized that all this shit is fake. Um, they're all social constructs. Uh, I began to believe that femininity was meaningless. It was a fake tan and a high-pitched laugh and a willingness to act dumb to get a guy. Even the way we interact with others is largely constructed and lorded over by social norms. Sociologists call it the dramaturgy of everyday life. Shakespeare was right when he said that all the world's a stage and all of us are merely players. And boy, I was really having difficulty playing the part of the cute feminine sorority girl. I felt much more comfortable with my improv team where being a girl meant nothing and being funny meant everything. I joined a sorority to learn how to be a girl and ended up feeling even further from being the type of girl I thought I ought to be. And then one day, I went to a drag show. <laughs> uh, and it all clicked. Of course all this shit is fake. It's not like people come out of the womb knowing that boys wear button-ups and girls wear dresses. For fuck's sake, my childhood idol RuPaul, my ideal of femininity, is a man. <laughs> my obsession with RuPaul wasn't about sparkly dresses and fun makeup. It was about the type of femininity I wanted. I don't want to be docile, giggly femininity of, of Japanese kawaii. I don't want to be the selfless martyr femininity of old literature. I don't want the pearls and cocktail dresses of Greek row. I want queen, bitch, high heel, full glitter, whore face, bright pink lips, drag. <laughs> All those ways, other ways of being a girl aren't wrong. They just weren't mine. I don't want to learn how to be a woman from Bella. I want to learn how to be a woman from a six-foot man in a dress. <laughs> and so now when I feel shitty about myself, I go to Ulta and I coo over nail polish and lipstick and I check the status of my delivery of bright silver sneakers. They get here on Tuesday, I'm very excited. And I watch a ton of the greatest show currently on television, RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> where each week you get to see a big group of grown men make femininity their bitch. And it is glorious. I'm not quite comfortable with myself yet, and I'm definitely not comfortable with my femininity, but I'm getting there. And so I take the words of Queen RuPaul as my mantra. We're all born naked, and the rest is drag.
Thank you, Maura. Uh, I don't want to step on anyone's toes, but I think it's interesting that you bring up Twilight since Fifty Shades of Grey literally began as Twilight fan fiction. That yeah. is truly, it's yeah, that is its real origin. Yeah, then. <laughs> yep, exactly. Exactly right. Oh, well, we will see about that. That has a bright future ahead of it. But for now, so uh, I don't know if you guys were here. I think in November we had uh, the guys from Chicago Loot Drop in the house. It's a really cool charity. We'll let them explain it for a second, but they're both also going to tell stories. So uh, first up, we have Mike Bretzleff, right? <laughs> I would appreciate it if you would plug yourself a little if okay. you want to before the story. No problem. Yeah. Okay. Um, Chicago Loot Drop is basically the local face of uh, Penny Arcade's Child's Play because nobody else is doing it, so we did it. Uh, and so we worked to raise money to buy books and toys and games for um, sick kids at University of Chicago's Comer Children's Hospital on the South Side. Um, and we, I mean, we love that place. Um, it reaches um, to a lot of the um, underprivileged kids. Um, who I have a very special heart for, and it even goes so far south as to where I'm from, Kankakee, to the point where even my, um, he turned two on February uh, when he was very young. My nephew actually was at Comer for a while, so uh, it was very interesting. You walk around Comer, it's just all these toys, and um, everybody, if you've ever given to, to Chicago Lee Drop, that's because of you, um, and so um, thank you. And now I'm going to read you a fan fiction I wrote when I was 12. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, managed to dig this out of my parents' basement. Um, it was quite the um, scavenge. Anyway, uh, they couldn't believe I found it, let alone that it had been kept and survived the flood um, in the basement. Uh, it is bound. It was, a, it was an assignment to write a short story, and then it was sent off to be bound. You can keep it forever. Probably the only one that kept it forever. Um, anyway, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read all of it. It's way too long. I'll read portions of it. Um, and I will read it as it is. Obviously not proofread by the teacher. Because there, so, there are... Anyway, so I give you my fan fiction, my obsession from when I was 12... Star Wars The Discovery. And now we get to the first page, which is probably the funniest page of all the pages, the dedication. I dedicate this book to George Lucas. This is 1994. The other trilogy hasn't come out yet, and Greedo still just gets blown the fuck away. Yeah. So, um, but Star Wars was resurging in popularity. This is uh, Timothy Zahn trilogy and the Dark Empire comic by Dark Horse. You know, and also the trilogy. I think at that time was on USA Network like every weekend, and to this day. I know where the commercial breaks are when I watch the original trilogy. Uh, much like Jaws on WGN, uh, I can tell you exactly where we're going to go to commercial break. And speaking of WGN, at the time before I wrote this, um, I had for the first time finally seen Predator 2. And the ending had blown my 12-year-old mind away with the, with the hidden Easter egg. That might come up. <laughs> All right, let's get to the actual story. 
Um, say it with me now. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. If you can't see, if you can't see, this, if you look, this is a dot matrix printer. Yeah. I typed it on a 486 and one of the first versions of WordPerfect that had a graphical interface. This is, this is very old. Okay, so this is the opening crawl. This is probably the one few things I will read entirely because some of you will probably appreciate this. <clears throat> Two years after the defeat of Admiral Dalla and the death of the first Dark Lord of the Sith, Axar Khan, Chief of State and Jedi Knight Leia Organa Solo has sent a strike team to investigate the galaxy the Sirook <laughs> came from. After their disappearance, she sends a new group that she will accompany. The members of this group are, and here's a whole bunch of names for you, Jedi Master Luke Skywalker, Jedi Knight Kip Duran, Han Solo, Chewbacca, droids R2-D2 and C-3PO, spelled out, by the way. Also, Leia's Jedi children, Jason, Jaina, Anakin, her helper, Winter, and the commander of the fleet, Admiral Akbar. I have more names, don't wait up. All right, she, she has left in charge Agas Nevak the new Minister of State of the New Republic and help of the former Chief of State, Mon Mothma. Okay, at the time, there were 24 published Star Wars novels. I had owned and read all of them, and I apparently really wanted you to know that. <laughs> um, as for the Siruk, there was a book, Truce of Pakura, if I recall, it was horrible, but the Force had no effect on them. As we know now, that would mean just that they have no midi-chlorines. Luke was not aware of this in the novel because Yoda and Obi-Wan didn't, didn't see it was fit to teach him that because it is dumb. <laughs> okay, so everybody that I just named is on the Millennium Falcon in this large New Republic fleet. And they have exited the galaxy where Star Wars takes place and they're trying to figure out which way to go. Luke, the Jedi Master slash dousing rot that he is, decides... I think we should go left. <laughs> New galaxy, no idea where they're at. We should go left. Because like Khan, he has no concept of space as three dimensions. It's just a two-dimensional plane, and Kirk is going to swoop down and kick your ass. All right, skipping ahead, because this is all garbage. They end up in this new galaxy. They find a planet that has an entire city, and it has a forest moon. So Coruscant and Endor, apparently. And I just move them into a new place. Everybody, and they get attacked by these mysterious ships. They don't know what's going on. Everybody takes flight, including Leia in her ship called Alderaan, which I'm guessing I pulled that. I'm guessing I didn't make that up. But in a poor choice of, choice of phrasing, Alderaan was hit and crashed into the small moon. Mm. So everybody of the main characters follows Leia down onto the forest moon. Uh, and the battle apparently is just going on. Uh, while they're fixing her ship, uh, they are hearing a loud roaring sound going on. So Luke and Kip decide to investigate. And they end up finding the strike team they're originally trying to find. Every, they're all dead. Their ship's destroyed. 
But then they hear the, the roaring sound again. And now we dive into it. The sound came again, but this time from only a few feet from where Luke stood. Luke looked ahead to where the sound came from and saw two horrifying creatures. They were black with razor-sharp fangs. They stood on two long legs, which enabled them to tower over the two Jedi, making them even more hair-raising than they were. Like lightning, they charged towards the Jedi, who quick to react to the attack. Who were quick to react to the attack? They immediately drew their lightsabers and activated them. They swung them through the air, cutting off the aliens' heads. Capital A, in case you didn't get the description, that's a proper noun. These are the aliens, the xenomorphs from Aliens. (laughs) (laughs) And so from now on, I just refer to them as capital A alien anytime they show up. I just assume you know what that is. The head falls to the ground and lands at Luke's feet. The green blood oozed onto Luke's shoes, but apparently doing no damage. I apparently didn't get that right. Anyway, they go deeper into the forest, and they find bodies of the strike team hanging upside down from the trees. Kip looked in horror at the bodies hanging from a branch on the tree. Below them were the bodies of some more aliens. Master, I suggest we leave here. Kip looked down at his shirt and saw a red triangle moving up onto his chest. Luke looked up to the branch where the bodies hung. He didn't see anything when, surprisingly, a predator appeared. Capital B, proper noun, no introduction. I hope hope you know what I'm referring to here. (laughs) Anyway, so, skipping, skipping past. Not surprisingly... They escape, they take off, and uh, the Millennium Falcon cannot enter hyperspace. And instead, they get pulled onto the Predator capital ship, in which, (laughs) using the Jedi mind trick, Luke managed to convince a Predator to take him to the tractor beam controls, because of course there are tractor beam controls. And everything's going well, and the predator is actually on his way out until, remember, this is for school, so certain words cannot be used. Han comments, oh man, that's one ugly thing. (laughs) To which the predator goes into a rage, ugly, ugly, and sounds an alarm. (laughs) Luke, we're going to have company, Han Holler! Oh no, not again, Luke said. Remembering what they had res- when they had rescued Leia on the first Death Star, first Death Star, Han had said the exact same thing. Be- because you didn't know that. Anyway, they end up in a long hallway full of uh, with prison cells full of aliens. The aliens get released from them, and they all handily dispatch them. <clears throat> but then something else shows up. Standing before them was another alien, except this one was bigger than the others and a lot more frightening. It walked up to Chewie and opened its mouth. Out came another mouth with fangs even sharper than the larger one. It snapped at Chewie, which angered him. (laughs) He pulled out his crossbow, and it's a bowcaster, you 12-year-old dumbass, um, and started... (laughs) 
and started to fire at the creature, re- reloading canister after canister. The creature cried out in pain. Chewie kept on firing until the creature dropped to the floor and died. After the large alien was dead, the steel doors opened. Why not? But hey, what, I would watch the movie where Chewie one-on-one takes out the queen alien. They go into the next room. On the south side of the room, because there's a south on a ship floating in space, (laughs) was a large crevice full of skulls of many types. Luke and Han walked over to it. It's some type of trophy case. Luke looked at each skull. Everyone had a tag underneath it telling which planet the skull came from. Luke saw many human skulls, but the one that interested him the most was the one that had a tag that said Earth. Uh Have you heard of the planet Earth? called earth luke asked han (laughs) nope (laughs) and that is the discovery from which the title takes from which the uh, story takes this title in case you missed it that's the discovery because then they escape the ship but r2 being r2 and he could interface with anything did of course download all the data from the ship and now they are headed to earth Brief conclusion, um, I, that 12-year-old that wrote this died several years ago, but with the announcement in November of new Star Wars movies, eh, without George Lucas, he is alive and well and very excited to be horribly disappointed again. First of all, crossovers are awesome, right? Second of all... Could we possibly scan that and put it on the website? Yes! Yeah! Awesome. Guys, give it up for Mike again. That was fucking great. Fucking great. So, we have the other fellow from uh, from Loot Drop right now. Uh, I might mangle your last name, dude. I'm sorry. But it's Vince Scalabrino. That's it, huh? Hey! Hey. Vince Scalabrino. Okay, I need uh, that. This is from 1984. It's Boombox. In case you've never seen one of these before, it plays audio tapes. I don't know if you've ever heard of those. They're pretty cool. Oh, and I should mention that I'm the other half of Chicago Blue Trap, and I, I'm in love with my truck now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a married man, and you know, but that was brilliant, dude. <laughs> so good. Yeah, I mean, I've known you for three, almost two yeah. and a half years, and. Never would have expected that out of you, man. It was so good. Um, okay, so how was I going to start this? Something like this. Uh... <laughs> Heavy metal. So my obsession with uh, heavy metal began a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, I was, uh, I think it was like around midnight, and I was like 15 years old, I'm sitting in the basement, I'm watching the boob tube, and uh, this, uh, this weird cartoon comes on, this chick's riding like an albino pterodactyl, and she's got like nothing on, right? And I was like, what is, what is this? And so I open the TV guide, and I look, and it says, heavy metal. I'm like, well, I don't know what, what the hell is this heavy metal stuff? So I do a little research and I find out it's this movie that like at the time had never been released to video. So then it become even cooler to me because it was like, you know, couldn't have it. But I found it at a bootleg copy at the local video store and I watched it. 
And I became obsessed with it. I became obsessed with 80s metal. I'm still kind of obsessed with 80s metal. Um, so flash forward 20 years, and I found out that Robert Rodriguez actually bought the rights to heavy metal, and he was going to make a new movie, which um, was so awesome. I was totally stoked about that. And then he, he said he was going to actually ask for help from the public, for people to actually like send him in their own little stories um, and, and sketches. And he would add these to the film, you know? And I was so excited. I, like, I was like, man, I got I to gotta be a part of this. I got to do something, you know? I got to be a part of this new heavy metal. And at the time, work was a little slow, so I actually, um, I had no business doing it, but I wrote first a treatment, and then I actually wrote the first of five parts <laughs> of, uh, of a screenplay for an animated uh, feature based on heavy metal. Um, and I sent it to Robbie. He never got back to me, Eric. <laughs> I was... I guess, but I was still, I was a little bummed about that, um, but I don't really care, I thought, when I, when I heard about this month's theme, I thought I'd, I'd dust it off and I'd bring it out, so, um, so what you're going to hear is a short excerpt from my ode to animated bouncing breasts and drunken robots, my freaky geeky fanfic fantasy, my animated opus, and I call it Transmission, a heavy metal redux in five parts. Um, <laughs> A couple of our fellow nerds here, uh, Chris and Kevin, are going to help me uh, bring it to life. So, gentlemen, <laughs> you please. Uh, I just have a request that you read all of these stage directions right. because they're gold. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, how old do you think I am? Well, how old were you when you wrote this? Oh, uh, it was just two years ago. All right. But I, I still... <laughs> That gives it no additional credence over something a 12-year-old wrote. Yeah, Just right. for the record. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm putting that out there. Um, this is amazing. Well, <laughs> thank you. There's supposed to be... Um, okay. Yes. Yeah, I'm not going to get the other tape. But there's supposed to be... Imagine accepts Living for Tonight playing right now, which has lots of guitar and, like, screaming dude. <clears throat> Elroy Berger, a skinny, bespectacled nerd in his mid to late 30s, sits in a server room surrounded by various computer parts. <laughs> Um, he jams to some serious metal as he bangs away on his keyboard. That's me there with the ponytail. Elroy Clive Berger, senior IT specialist at Sell Your Soul, Inc. The biggest collections company in the city. You may think that you hate your job, but let me tell you, the folks I work with hate theirs more. With a passion and vigor that would put even the horniest of teenage boys to shame. And whenever they can, my co-workers direct their hatred squarely at me. <laughs> at the desk behind Elroy is Ned Oliver, an overweight, balding man with a mustache wearing a striped polo that looks far too small for him. Taking apart a laptop and extracting something from its interior, he continues to focus on his work as he curtly blurts, Elroy, did you close out that ticket for Bill with the email freeze? Elroy's jamming to his music and obviously ignoring Ned. <laughs> Elroy, are you listening to me? He looks up and seeing Elroy with his headphones on, he frowns and cuts loose a Fred Flintstone-like yell. Elroy! <laughs> Ripping off his headphones, Elroy throws an evil stare in the direction of Ned. What do you need? Sir. I need you to stop paying attention. If you can't show me some respect, I'm quite sure I can find someone else who can. Yes, sir. My apologies. I'm working on Bill's ticket right now. It looks like he has some spyware. I'll have it fixed soon. 
Elroy is clearly upset, but he flashes a forced smile to Ned as he returns to his work. Ned harumphs loudly and walks to the now whole laptop out the door, slamming it behind him. I swear, my boss has no penis. <laughs> He makes up for his lacking by being the biggest dick imaginable. <laughs> and as luck would have it, I seem to be the one getting the most intense dickings as of late. <laughs> hey, you can't fault a guy for wanting to blast some classic metal while he works. Especially when he's surrounded by such incredible douchebags. Elroy looks up for a second, puts his headphones back on and smiles. And the jams continue. <laughs> A montage kicks in, flashing through more of Elroy's day, fixing printers, taking apart and reassembling numerous desktops and laptops, all the while getting pointed at and laughed at by his colleagues behind his back. The montage concludes with a computerized voice saying, You've got mail. What's this? Ooh, nice. A new arcade cabinet for my collection. Let's see where it is. He, oh, that's, yeah, I don't have to that. Go ahead. Arcade games. I love them. <laughs> I'm not talking about those spastic, twitchy shoot-em-ups that all the kids are loving nowadays. No, I'm talking about the golden age of video games. These games didn't come on a CD, but on a printed circuit board inside a cabinet of 5.8 MDF with a 19th, CRT mo- 19th inch CRT monitor, isolation transformer, joysticks, spinners, trackballs, buttons, and the whole nine yards. Cut up to a close-up of a control panel, an arcade control panel, with a shiny ball-tap joystick. There's nothing else quite like the feel of a nice joystick in your hands. <laughs> Say what you will about these modern, those modern game con- console controllers. I'll take my ball-top long shaft four-way any day. <laughs> When I was in high school, I saved up all my cash for my part-time job at Egghead Software. <laughs> and lawn mowing to get my first cabinet, a 1981 Galaga machine. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Zoom out from the control panel and we reveal a Galaga cabinet. Uh, I got it for only 200 bucks from a local arcade that was making, making way for some new games. They didn't have any appreciation for this classic shooter. Flash forward to today, and my basement is chock full of cabinets re- representing my faves from the golden age of video games. Robotron 2084, Joust, Space Invaders, Miss Pac-Man, Rampage, Smash TV, Discs of Tron, you name it. I've got over 70 games in my basement arcade. They're finicky bastards, though, and, and keeping them running has earned me an honorary degree in electronics repair and software engineering. <laughs> it just so happens with that with skills like that, you can earn a decent living in IT. That's assuming, of course, you don't mind working with a bunch of assholes. (laughs) Even though my collection has nearly filled my basement, there are still a few rare cabs that I wouldn't mind finding some room for. So I've got these scripts I wrote that that monitor the internet, trolling for potential new additions to my collection. Craigslist, various uh, collector's forums, eBay, you name it. And that day, I thought my scripts had struck arcade gold. At least, it seemed that way at the time. So we see Elroy on the phone walking out of his office. Hi, it's Elroy Berger. We traded email about your Star Scout. Be there in about an hour to check it out. (laughs) The voice on the other end of the phone is monotone and stilted. It has an accent and cadence that seems to indicate that English doesn't come easy to it. Yes, that will be just fine. (laughs) 
Mr. Berger. We will leave the door open for you. Meet us in the back with the game. R.O. Get into my car. Oh, sorry. You get into your car, which is a vintage black and red 1979 El Camino. At the time, I didn't think anything of this R.O. guy. It's a really strange accent. You know, he could have been some kind of shut-in. Hell, a lot of us arcade collectors tend to be. But then there was this, this fact that he referred to himself as only R.O. And in the royal plural to boot. Yeah. Now that I think about it, that conversation really shouldn't have been my first clue that really should have been my first clue that something just wasn't right about this deal. So we see we see Elroy getting out of his car in some industrial district uh, in front of a nondescript warehouse. Had I been paying attention to the clue so far, I probably would have thought twice about opening that door. Was that it was, but as it was, I just barged right in and was pretty surprised by what I saw. We see Elroy enter the warehouse and get a good look at the inside. It's full of all manner of random parts and junk. Strange sounds hum and buzz all around, accompanying blinking lights and vector monitors flashing arrays of wiggling dots and lines. Elroy carefully navigates the chaos and winds around at the back, and there, settled between two massive piles of junk, is a very dusty arcade cabinet. There's an envelope taped to the screen with the word Elroy written in block letters on it. He rips the envelope off the screen and opens it to reveal a note written in clinical block letter handwriting. <laughs> Mr. Berger, <laughs> we had to run a quick errand. If you like the Star Scout game, and we hope that you do, please use the dolly to wheel the machine out through the, through the dock door. It is yours for the taking. R.O. <laughs> so here I am, staring at this extremely rare game. Star Scout, a bright oil electronics prototype from 1982. <laughs> I've never even heard of this game before today. And according to killer list of video games, there aren't any of them left in the hands of collectors. This game was worth its weight in gold, and I was getting it for free! <laughs> At this point, I really should have realized that I had just stepped into some seriously serious shit. <laughs> present your stories is sponsored by the chicago sketch comedy troupe the nerdalogs and is recorded the third sunday of every month at the public house theater 3914 north clark street in chicago the stories you heard have been prepared and presented by the speakers on a volunteer basis special thanks to sean patrick boyle for his help with recording our theme song comes from the band state shirt for more information on the nerdalogs your stories and everything else go to www.nerdalogs.com <laughs>